So I heard a story of a, of a Border Patrol customs officer who was very good at finding contraband and did his job well. And a truck pulled up, and the officer was quite suspicious. He's been, uh, been around the block many times, looks over the vehicle quite thoroughly, and he, he knows there's something's being smuggled here, and pulls off the panels, the bumpers, the wheel cases, and yet finds nothing. <clears throat> Still suspicious, he waves the driver through, and uh, this happens the next week. The driver comes again, and again, he... He suspects this, he looks, he examines, he does everything he can think of, thinks of every trick in the book, strenuous searches, and lets him through. And this goes on now for months and even some years as this truck had always come through. He could never, never catch him, never could figure out what he was doing. Each week there was nothing. He was even utilizing sonars and x-rays. And Well, after a few years go by, the border officer, it's his time to retire. And so the driver pulls up on what will be his last day. And he tells the driver, I know that you've been smuggling something. Don't even deny it. You know, not even have that conversation. Uh, he says, but I just can't figure out what it is. And this is my last day. I swear I can't do anything about it now. So could you just tell me, what is it that you've been smuggling? And the driver just looks at him and says, trucks. And so it's at times like this we can get the picture that it's easy to miss something big, isn't it? Something obvious, really important things. So here is Israel, as we've seen, with Jesus Christ and the stumbling block and all the ways he's been portrayed, uh, their Messiah, and they're staring right at him. But they're missing it, and they don't see it. And so they are rejecting their, their anointed one, Jesus Christ. And so as you can see in Romans chapter <clears throat> 9, we're going to look at first just a quick context of, and I just kind of title these each sections of, as we're looking at two peoples in this case, two results, two approaches in chapter 9 verse 30 through chapter uh, 10 verse 10, which is where we were yesterday. And the two people, as we know, are the Gentiles and Israel. And in chapter 9, verse 30, he says, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. On the other hand, there's Israel, verse 31, pursuing the law of righteousness. They have not attained to the law of righteousness. And why is that? Verse 32 explained, because they did not seek it by faith. But as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone as it is written. Oops. I stumbled over the. <laughs> Sorry, I'm knocking things around. But as it is written, I laid in Zion a stone of offense. So, a very interesting. <laughs> is it going to Thank you. Sorry about that. And what, whoever believes on him at the end of verse 33 will not be put to shame. So we see here the Gentiles, and they're in comparison to Israel. We see how the Gentiles have attained to righteousness. Israel has not attained to righteousness. We also were told that the Gentiles sought that righteousness by faith, whereas Israel are seeking righteousness by works of the law. And so the question can be then, how can this be? So just imagine... 
you're uh, walking through a park on a nice day. You already know it's coming, but uh, several people are on the walkway and we'll say one is, is a woman who's jogging and concentrating on her workout and her heart rate and everything very serious, very focused on finishing her, her jogging route and she's intense and she's dedicated and committed, maybe even zealous you could say. And her eyes are on the target. She's got some reward expecting, something she's expecting as a reward. And she's so focused she doesn't notice the rock in the path, which was a pretty big one. And there's actually an, a reward, what she was seeking, attached to it. And she trips, and she falls right over the rock and face plants and is brushing herself off and surprised and upset at the delay this is going to be and even angered and continues on her run. And just after that, there's another person in the park sauntering along, and this guy is just in a casual walk with no pressure, no specific goal, putzing along, and then he notices the rock. And what's more, he notices the reward that is attached to it, and he bends over and lays hold of that reward. And now smiling, he continues on his relaxed journey. And that's a picture of what's happened here in Romans 9 with Israel and the Gentiles. And in fact, if Israel hadn't stumbled and fallen, uh, the rock, the reward, wouldn't even have been there waiting for the other person. And so we enter chapter 10. And just as we, excuse me, as we just saw the explanations here of verses 1 through 10 uh, last night, we saw that Israel was not saved in verse 1. Desiring. Paul had a passion and a desire for their salvation, meaning that they were not saved. We saw last night that despite zeal, obvious sincerity, but they, it wasn't according to knowledge. They were ignorant. And so zeal, as was mentioned, uh, minus knowledge can actually become very, even dangerous. They don't recognize Christ, as Romans 10.4 says, if we'll look at that, chapter 10, verse 4. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And that's what they're ignorant of, and that's what they missed. And they do not understand, in verse 6, we see that the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. As in that last section we saw last night, righteousness of faith is being compared to what it says to what Moses was saying in terms of the law. And so the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. And we saw in verses 9 and 10, it explains the righteousness of faith that you can be saved through confessing Christ as Lord and believing in your heart. And that we saw those were not two separate, distinct um, things in the sense of steps for salvation. They were expressing faith and a recognition of knowing who Christ is and understanding that and believing that in the heart. So the righteousness of faith says in verse 8 that you will be saved and then explains in several verses as he was using the uh, structure of of quote in Deuteronomy and so forth. So that brings us to chapter 11, or excuse me, verse 11. And here we read, For the scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, 
For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so in this section, these three verses, we're going to see now how God reduces this to one people, one approach, one Lord, <clears throat> one result. The one people are who, as we see in verse 11, the scripture says, whoever. Whoever is who the focus suddenly now is. The emphasis is even in the text on whoever. We see the whoever is, in, is actually in a, um, uh, a, is a quoting here. Paul is in uh, verse 11. And he's quoting what's already been quoted, the passage from Romans 9.33. And he's quoting uh, from an Old Testament scripture he's already been referred to. He's quoting Isaiah 28.16. And there, it's whoever is a participle, but Paul is making it an adjective here in verse 11. He's taking liberty with the text and he's emphasizing with a spotlight the concept of whoever. And so by saying whoever, he's followed this by two more times in verse 12, the word all, and then he's going to say whoever again when he's quoting a different passage in verse 13. So if you just see that, you see whoever, all, all, and whoever and these three verses. So Paul has added the adjective pas to whoever before the, the participle. And so it's translated all who believe or whoever. Everyone, all who believe. So here is again a clear emphasis, isn't it? And the one thing we can note, as he's going to say very plainly in verse 12, but even just from this verse, is there is no distinction here. This is, this is laid out to whoever. And so Paul is putting the spotlight on anyone, as he's really still using the, the righteousness of faith back in verse 6 that is speaking. The righteousness of faith says that you will be saved, and now it's saying again as a reason for what it's saying, as a backup, he's quoting a scripture, for whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. The it's actually a, like I said, uh, the whoever would be as a participle in this verse, as a present participle. You could say the believing ones. So they're described as those who have believed, the believing ones. So we're describing the whoever by those who have approached by faith. And on him, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. We see thirdly that they have been granted a promise to enjoy in this passage, verse 11, they will not be put to shame. And this is, in of course, in the future, so a future tense, so, but it's in the negative, so this will not happen. They will definitely not be put to shame. It will not occur. We have seen how Peter quotes this same verse in 1 Peter 2.6. The word be put to shame is just the idea of being disappointed or being frustrated. Being, having your hopes frustrated. So here's a promise. You're, in the future, your hopes will not be frustrated. You will not be disappointed if you've put your faith on him. It reminds me uh, of, uh, I don't have, I guess I got it out of place. Here we go. Romans 1.16, earlier in this epistle, where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, 
For it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now the word shamed here is not the, the exact word that Paul used in Romans 10, but we get this, the concept and we can understand that. Paul in chapter 1 is saying he's not ashamed of the gospel. He's not ashamed to share the gospel, whether it's to the Jew or the Greek, the barbarian, the civil, you know, any combination of people. He's not ashamed of it because it's the power of God onto salvation. It's a sense he's saying, I'm not ashamed of it because I know it works. I know that whoever you are, whatever your circumstances, wherever you are in life, whatever continent or century or whatever, this message of the gospel works. It satisfies the soul. It provides eternal life. It cleanses you from sin when you put your faith in Christ, who's the center of this gospel message, knowing of his resurrection as well. So one thing the gospel never does is wrong, is nothing. I like someone who said that, I like that. One thing the gospel never does is nothing. It's the power of God. It's active. So, in contrast, any message of self-works and self-righteousness and so forth would be bringing someone to shame. If you're going to put your trust in trying to keep the law, for example, which we saw last night from Moses, is impossible, it's impossible. The one who's going to keep the law, if you're going to get righteousness rather by the law, you have to do it. You have to, you have to bat a thousand. So you're going, to, you're going to be put to shame if you're going to approach God any other way than the way he has provided through Christ. Approaching God through the law will bring a, uh, will bring a, a shame. Striving, performing, doing. And it'll also breed self-righteousness. And that pride can be, again, in your approach and your efforts. And Israel, we know, unfortunately, were rather well-known for their pride, especially if they were comparing themselves to other nations. That's why I'm reminded of Proverbs 11, verse 2, that says, when pride comes, then comes shame. But with the humble is wisdom. So, in Romans, or back in verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 11 through 13, then we see the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. And that's because the emphasis is now going to be in verse 12, how there is one Lord. Remember, this is still the righteousness of faith speaking from verse 8, explaining why you will be saved. And you'll be saved because this is the promise of God guaranteeing this to whoever, whoever uh, um, believes on him will not be put to shame. And now in verse 12, he says, there is no distinction for is again a, a, a reason. So the reason you will not the reason you will not be put to shame and the reason you will be saved is because there's no distinction. The righteousness of faith has said this. The same Lord is over all. He is Lord over all. No distinction between Jew and Greek. And that is a tremendous statement. The same Lord is over all. Now, Paul has earlier stated this in Romans chapter 3 and verse 29, um, when he's making this no distinction. He says, if he is the God of the Jews only, is he not also God of the Gentiles? And Peter is going to say, yes, indeed, he is. Notice the emphasis that is placed in Romans so far on this no distinction. Back in chapter 1, verse 16, we just read, the gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. 
In 117, he goes on to say, for in, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, which is implying from the Jewish faith and the covenants and everything given to them to now the Gentiles that are coming in. In chapter 2, verse 9, there's tribulation, anguish on every soul, the Jew first and also the Greek. There is glory, honor, and peace to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. Notice, also to the Greek, also to the Greek. So Paul's been making this point. It's a sub-theme, really, of Romans. In chapter 3, verse 9, every mouth may be stopped. All the world may become guilty. And notice by implication, there's no distinction. That would be for the Jew and the Greek. Chapter 3, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. This has been stated. Seven verses later, is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, he is God of the Gentiles also. Chapter 4, does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? As he's pointing out how it was to Abraham that the blessings came when he was uncircumcised. And so there is no difference. And this is something that Paul has been stressing in this epistle. And this is something that even at, back at the, the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, that was an issue that they had to wrestle and come to terms with. That God is the God of the Gentiles. That salvation is opened through Christ to everyone. No wonder... Colossians 3, as it speaks of us, as we think of ourselves in the church age, and has been put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge, according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, nor free, but Christ is all and in all, and us being his people in Christ, there is no difference there as well. I mentioned the Jerusalem Council. I actually have that quick passage up here. In Acts 15, they came and they were discussing, and so God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. So now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. And so this was a dawning, new dawning. This was a concept, and this is what has to be understood. There is no distinction. There is no difference. And these are very difficult words, again, for a, Jew, a Jewish mindset to grasp because they have for centuries and centuries understood themselves as the chosen people, the ones called out, the ones who were given the covenants and, and the promises and these advantages. And they had to, Paul had to uh, walk them through these very types of issues in Romans chapter 3. We won't go back, but verses 1 all the way up to uh, uh, 12 or 13, somewhere in there, he's going through four objections that the Jewish mindset would have. So this is very important in verse 12. There is no distinction. He is Lord over all in Romans 10, 12. Lord over all. 
And so remember in 329 highlighted up there, he is the God of the Jews only? The question, is he? No. He, is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes. He is God of the Gentiles also. So we fast forward to chapter 10, verse 12. Paul's making that point. There is no distinction. There is no difference. There is one Lord, sovereign over all. And as we've seen in chapter 9, that sovereignty was very important as he is free. He has free choice to bless who he wants, have mercy on who he wants, etc. He has rightful sovereignty and with no distinction. We then would note that he's impartial in his sovereignty. And thus he's free to offer to all humanity as he's doing here, whosoever, whoever. And so we move to chapter 10, verse 13, where he solidifies this thought with another quote from the Old Testament, from another passage in the Old Testament. He says, or excuse me, I'm ahead of myself, finishing verse, uh, verse 12. He goes on to say he's Lord over all, and he is rich to all who call upon him. He is rich toward all who call upon him. This is, again, a participle, so it's describing. How do you think of God? How do you describe God? Well, here's a good way to describe our God. He's rich toward all who call upon him. This means the word uh, uh, to, to in the BDAG is just to be plentifully supplied. Generous. He gives generously. Rich in gifts and spiritual blessings is the idea here, then, toward those who call upon him which means he's a generous God. He's generous toward you and I, isn't he? His own people, those who call on him in faith, he is rich toward, generous toward. He makes available to us his resources. And this generosity is the outflow of love. As we know, God is, is love. And so we see these same words in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. In verse 9, the same idea of richness. We see, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul will say here, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. Why? That you and I, through his poverty, might become rich. And so here's that great exchange, isn't it? Christ comes as riches and he gives his riches unto us and he takes our poverty. This is the generous heart of grace. This is God, who is rich, in verse 12, to all who call upon him. So, <clears throat> we're reminded of the same idea, if you recall, remember in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, there's redemption and forgiveness according to the riches of his grace. Or later, in Ephesians 2, verse 7, he says that, that he might show the exceeding riches of his grace. So rich, this richness, this generousness is obviously very closely attached to grace. Grace, getting something we don't deserve. And grace indeed is counterintuitive, isn't it, to our natural thinking. Everything within us has, wants to do violence to grace. We don't understand it. It's obviously supernatural. We can't qualify it. We'll never deserve it. And this we all wrestle with. But boy, when we see the glory of grace, is it not good news? Does it not put a smile on your face? Is it not good news to know that we get everything, though we deserve nothing, through Christ? And so, 
it's rich toward all again in verse 13. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so now, he's the same verse that he's uh, referring to here was found in Acts chapter, in the same form rather, is found in Acts chapter 9 and 14 and 21, referring to believers who call on his name. The idea here is those who call on his name. The word call upon, as we've seen, is, uh, is epikaleo. It, it's, uh, it's general. It, it can mean to surname, which is one way of looking at it, but typically it's the idea of to call upon a deity, uh, particularly in the context of needing aid or call out for help. So it's an invocation addressed to Christ for help in that sense. So whoever calls upon him, we see, shall be saved. So <clears throat> Paul is now taking this verse and applying it and to this context of all and anyone as call upon the Lord to be saved. It's a term even that gets used for Christians in general. Um, in 1 Corinthians, oh, the, here's the emphasis of the word call. We find it three times, along with the verses that are whoever. We see them together. And 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, to the church, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified, Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. So this calling is something that is a, now identified as a general description of Christians, as we see the use of it here in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 2. So <clears throat> calling on him, because you know him, calling on him for some form of help or aid. This is how this would be understood, even in this passage. But in light of his love and his generosity, this is a way of responding, calling on to, to his goodness and his generous and his grace things. And so it implies a relationship, a connection. It implies communication in terms of calling out, calling his name. It's not something we have to do. It's something that we are privileged to do, knowing that he is there, he is aware, and he cares. This knowing this can fuel and empower a life. And who are they calling upon? They're calling upon him. And whoever calls upon him will be saved. So here's the promise, then, that he's given to enjoy. Scripture here says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Saved, And again, this is a supporting statement to what the righteousness of faith is saying back in verse 6. You will be saved. And after explaining the confession and the belief for about four verses there, he's summarizing this by saying, quoting two verses, both showing that whoever calls on, or in this case, believe, uh, calls on in the first case, believes and now calls within between uh, a verse of universality and the whosoever's. So this is the final clause of the righteousness of faith that is speaking, and it's granting a promise here to enjoy in this verse as well. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so here, the calling on, the verse is in Joel chapter 2, verse 32, which is interesting because here Peter also quotes Joel 2.32 um, at the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. In Joel, if you went back and read that in Joel chapter 2, there's a prophetic 
it's a prophetic passage. It's referring to Israel calling on the Lord in the last days to escape their predicament they were in. So in Joel, it's a prophetic passage, and it's calling on in Joel to the Lord, which is Jehovah. It's Yahweh in that text. So whoever calls on Yahweh shall be saved. So the name of the Lord is the emphasis. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord is what we see in verse 13. And it's Yahweh in Joel 2.32. But here in Romans, who is Paul applying it to? He's applying it to Jesus Christ. Thus, here we have a stark claim of deity, don't we, for Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Lord, as has already been stressed, we saw last night in verses 8 through 10. <clears throat> and, a, and one's name, the name of the Lord, reveals the, the nature. And, a, and so there's, there's, a, uh, there's no distinction here between the name and the reality. So we're calling upon Yahweh, who is Christ in this context, and they shall be saved. In Joel, it was for physical or even national salvation. But there's two shifts of meaning here from the text of Joel and the quote here in Romans 10.13. First, the reference to Lord is different. In Joel, it was Yahweh, and here Paul is applying it to Christ. We know that Yahweh, it's, it's a different by way of the name. Second, the understanding of salvation was physical in Joel, and here Paul is applying it to whoever and as spiritual. And as we saw last night, this, is, this whole passage is going to be touching on in this section on individual response, as well as in the, uh, under the, uh, the um, greater context of salvation of Israel and national salvation. So as a summary, if we look at these first three verses, oh, by the way, from the context of Romans 10.13, the uh, exegetical dictionary of the New Testament explains the verse uh, in this way, the word. Uh, the, Romans 10.13 is to be interpreted as the invocation of Jesus as Lord, used of the cry in which the basis for the salvation is the basis for the salvation of mankind. So they are saying that this is in verse 13. It's a, it's a cry, like, just like uh, he was saying, confess with your mouth. So as we summarize these two verse, these three verses, you can see in verse 11, the whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Verse 13 has whoever calls on the name of the Lord, <clears throat> and as, as that was suggested, is confesses, shall be saved. So put to shame will not be put to shame, and saved <clears throat> are virtually identical here. Believing on him and calling or confessing, naming him as Lord, virtually identical. But what's in the middle? Verse 12, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is over all. So this is extended, these three verses. Paul is saying, this is how you obtain righteousness. This is what the righteousness of faith is saying, how you will be saved, or the process of being saved. So the emphasis here is there's no distinction. The emphasis here is clearly by way of Paul, how he even uh, uh, quotes the Old Testament, adds the, uh, the, the uh, whoever, the way that the word whoever is used, or all, four times in this passage, the emphasis is whoever. <laughs> there is no distinction. And this is exactly, as we know, what the Jews were missing, right? This is exactly what they were not grasping. 
And so Paul is making this point yet again in chapter 10 here that we saw he has been making in numerous places throughout Romans. So we get to the answer. The question is we understand the Jews have attained a righteousness, or excuse me, the Gentiles have attained a righteousness. The Jews have not. Two different results. Why is this? Here's the answer, part one. And the answer is they have or excuse me, that uh, there is no distinction. Righteousness will come to all the same way. It comes to everybody the same way, which is by faith. Through what God has provided. So we have seen in context two peoples, two results, two approaches. We started there. We've now got a clarification for that. We have just one people, one approach to one Lord with one result. Righteousness, salvation, not be put to shame. And it's by faith. And so, we have the clarification. Uh, we've seen that. And the whoever is the emphasis. So we move on to verse 14 now. And look at 14 through verse 17. Where here we're going to see one message is still there. One transmission. One response. And one critical failure. And this is introduced by a syllogism of four rhetorical questions. They're on your handout. And you can see uh, four questions where they're rhetorical, which means the answer is very obvious. How then shall they call if they have not believed? We can all answer, right? They can't. How then can they believe if, in him of whom they haven't heard? Answer? They can't. How shall they hear without one preaching? They can't. And how shall they preach unless they are sent? They can't. And so we're going to see the conclusions he makes there before we go into the last section. So he's got six rhetorical questions, actually, four in this set and then two more. And he's going to refer from here to the end of the chapter six Old Testament citations. <clears throat> but the first question is, is right there in verse 14, how then shall <clears throat> they, how then shall they be saved? And that's a good question. Who are the they, right? Who are the they? And so there's several offer, uh, answers that there are uh, suggestions that can be made. Um, <clears throat> as we think of that, the, it's in the third person plural verb, uh, they. So could they be referring to the whoever of verses 11 and 13 as a unit? Or are they referring to Israel, which was clearly the word they was used as we saw, verses chapters 10, 2, and 3, and so forth? as Israel, as we know, is the focal point of chapters 9, 10, and 11 all along. I'll just give you what I found just looking up some different uh, um, commentaries and things. Um, who are the they? These men would say that it was uh, the they are, are targeting Israel in particular, but it's for everyone. In other words, the tr tr truths mentioned are true for anyone. But of course, in light of the context and everything else, they're zooming in on Israel. So these are some, I won't mention them all, those are some uh, commentators that took that position. Um, another side would be just, no, it's just referring to the Jews only. That's been the context, that's the flow, and it's just national Israel. We're just looking at the Jews only. Um, and so these are some um, writers that took that position. One position I'm surprised is you would think no one is going to say it's just the Gentiles, right? But a few did. Um, and I'm not sure if I'm understanding their argument correctly, but that's what it seems like they're saying, which... Uh, would be a bit of a surprise. So who are the they? I think it's good to understand that it's uh, the truth that he's going to mention here definitely apply to anyone. But there's no question the context of 9, 10, and 11, right, is who? 
Israel. And he's talking about why is it that Israel doesn't have righteousness? And he's going to tell us why. This is the whole flow of chapter 10. Uh, this is leading up to why don't they have righteousness? So <clears throat> we get to the four questions. Um, <clears throat> the first one is how then shall they call, <clears throat> excuse me, if, uh, and on whom they have not believed? How then shall they call on whom they have not believed? Obviously, they can't. This is the same word, epikaleo, call, as we've seen in the previous verses. And this is, this is the apex. This is the high point. This is the goal, to be able to call on the Lord, which means to have a relationship with him, to have a connection with him, to call on to him for help, to communicate with him, etc. This is awesome. How do we call on the Lord if we haven't believed on him? And so this obviously is reflecting uh, faith to believe. And um, believing, if we borrowed from verse 13, implies a con an understanding that Jesus is Lord, right? Which is the key point for, for the Jewish mindset. But how can this be done? How can they call on Jesus as Lord if they don't believe him? And here, how do they call on whom they have not believed? This is an aorist tense verb. It's always nice to see the verb for faith, pistuo, as a, um, uh, in, a, in an aorist tense as it is occasionally. And here it's emphasizing some, you know, like a decisive event or a completed act of, of uh, believing. And I think that's interesting when we play the game of, well, which comes first? You know, like the chicken and the egg. Which comes first here? Believing comes first before the calling? How can they call without believing? And then we see the next question, how shall they believe in him um, who, of, excuse me, of whom they have not heard? Now the pistuo, the, the, the word believe is in the future, which means before they can believe they have to hear something. So we're seeing obvious progression and movement and which comes first again? Hearing is needed in order for there to be faith and faith is needed in order to there to be a relationship and a calling and an understanding of Jesus as Lord. And how shall they hear without preaching in verse 14? And so the word means to announce, preaching. It's to announce, to proclaim, to herald, as that was common in that culture those days of a herald, a town crier. To preach Christ would mean to announce news, announce him. So there is a message related to him that needs to be declared and proclaimed and preached. <clears throat> and what is it? Jesus is Lord, which he stated in Romans 10, 6 through 10. We see it again in 10, 13. He's Yahweh. He's Lord. He, he's the Messiah. He's what you need as Christ is the end of righteousness obtained by the law, Christ is how you obtain righteousness, is the only way, through faith. Proclaim him. That's the content of the preaching. And we see verse 15 now, the, next, the last is the fourth question here, rhetorical, is how shall they preach unless they are sent? You see, a herald in that day would not say just whatever they wanted. They were commissioned. They had a message, whatever it was, to say. And the herald announces no words more or less than he is bidden to say. 
He's not free to alter or change anything. He's proclaiming news, which means that he is commissioned. He is sent. He has an authority in that sense in light of that. So there's a commission that's sending messengers. And who is assumed here that's giving this authority? Who's, can we guess? Who's commissioning them? Who is sending them? Hey, very good, right? Jesus Christ. He is the one. If you look back at chapter 1, we see that Paul clearly understands that's his life. He's commissioned. He has been sent. And Paul, in his introduction, begins in verse 1, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated for what purpose? I've been separated and called for the gospel of Christ, verse 1 which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God. That means that's a message there. There's a declaration uh, with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So notice verse 5, through him we have received grace and apostleship. Who did he get it from? Through him. And what is that apostleship? It's to proclaim the gospel of Christ. And so verse 5, Paul's identifying himself as one of those who has been sent, as well as many others, a number of, you know, that we are all uh, commissioned, so to speak, to preach the gospel, to go into all, uh, everywhere, and share this good news. So how can they preach unless they are sent? The preachers can't, which means the preachers are sent. And the message then that they preach is described by this amazing quote that he's going to take from Isaiah 52.7 and uh, also in Nahum 1.15. And you'll find it in verse 15. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Notice some of the descriptions here. How beautiful are the feet. Now, we don't normally hear that of ourselves. I know I definitely don't. But the word, the beautiful, the feet, the word actually carries the idea of, a, of timeliness, of at the appropriate time. How timely and appropriate are the feet? And that immediately makes you think of Galatians 4, 4 through 5, when the fullness of the time had come. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. When did this happen? There was a time, the fullness of time, the appropriate time. And here comes Christ, and following him, here come his messengers, sharing about how God sent forth his son, and so forth. So we have these, this message that those who are carrying this message have beautiful feet, timely, appropriate. This is soothing, good stuff. In fact, that's what the next two descriptions are. And actually, uh, it's the, the glad tidings is repeated twice in the original text, so it's of emphasis. Glad tidings of peace is how it literally reads, glad tidings of good things. So they are sent with glad tidings of peace and glad tidings of good things. That's a nice description, isn't it? That's the message that we get to share. Think of Romans 
chapter 10, verse 12, glad tidings of good things. Verse 12, he is rich to all who call upon him. Repetition, glad tidings, glad tidings, good news. This is our God reaching into a fallen world, incarnate, coming, born to die, so that we can live. Giving up his spiritual, his, his riches so that we who are poor can become rich. His generous gift through Christ. This is good news. This is a powerful message for the world to hear. When Christ entered into this world, that's what we heard. Luke chapter 2, verse 10. Then the angel said to the shepherds out in the fields, Don't be afraid, for behold, I bring to you good tidings of great joy, which is for the Jews. No, right all, all along. It's for who? Whoever. It's for all people. Friends, we have the best message on earth, don't we? Because it's not of this earth. <laughs> it's supernatural. It's good news. And it's good news from God to every one of us and everyone we know and everyone who occupies the earth. God loves us in spite of ourselves. Stunning. God wants us enter into relationship with him. He wants his own, he sent his own son to enter into our very messy world. And he died. And why did he die? He died for us. He died for all of us, for our sins, all of our sins. <clears throat> because he loves us and he loves us now, excuse me, now and later and he loves us forever. And he's demonstrated his great love for us at the cross where Christ died for us where he was crucified, where God allowed his own son to be crucified on your behalf, on my behalf. And God is satisfied with that death that Christ made to pay our infinite debt of sin against his holy justice. And so we could, he could cry out, it is finished, paid in full. Is that not glad tidings? Grace reigns, Romans 5, 20, 21 reminds us now. Grace reigns. Grace is God's message to us. That God is not holding our sins against us, as 2 Corinthians 5 says. They've been paid for. God's justice has been settled. You can be forgiven for everything, for all things, always, always forgiven. This is the good news. He will forgive you. He will cleanse you. He will redeem you. He will reconcile you. He will secure your destiny. He will hold you so tight, and he will never let us go. And this is all by grace. And this is because of Jesus, our righteousness, our shepherd, our savior, our everything. So it's so simple, isn't it? Believe in your heart. Jesus Christ is the savior. He's the one who has come to make us whole. And it's just by faith in what he's done for us, that substitutionary death and his burial and his resurrection. And you believe on him and we see you will not be put to shame. You will be saved. And God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? That whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. <clears throat> by grace, you and I are saved through faith. 
And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works lest anyone should boast. And so we preach that Jesus is alive. He's resurrected and he's offering life and he's offering eternal life to any who would believe. He is the victor. He is the king of kings. And he is ours and he is yours. And we have this by faith. And you can't earn it. And you can't deserve it. It's free and it's available to anyone, to everyone, right now, believe and be saved. And have eternal life. Praise the Lord. Amen? This is the good news. And he says, so send I you for us. <clears throat> and this is a message. <clears throat> and I know we've been talking about, excuse me, <clears throat> in uh, Romans 9, 10, and 11, uh, a lot, there's a lot of uh, uh, misunderstandings. We know we've been dealing with a Reformed theology here. And you know, if you're in the strict Reformed circles, you can't proclaim this, and you can't do this. You can't tell someone that God loves them. Can you? Because God only loves who? You can't tell them that Christ died for them. Why? Because God only, Christ only died for and look, this message is to be proclaimed. This is good news. So just go sit on it. It's terrible. It's unfortunate. This is amazing. This is Christianity. This is Christ and what Christ ones are going to do. This is our message and we've been sent. And we are chosen then to preach this in the alleyways, on the hilltops, off the rooftops, into the squalor and into the hurt and into the pain of this world. This is good news and it needs to be hurt. And it's a message of love. It's a message of eternal, unfailing, fierce, one-way love. And so we all need our come-to-Jesus moment, don't we? By faith. And then share that when we've tasted and seen how good this is. It's a message of love. So you can sleep well tonight, knowing you're forgiven, reconciled, declared righteous, and beloved, and there's really nothing you can do about it. It's settled. <laughs> settled forever and secure. You've been declared righteous. So, this is indeed... A tremendous message. And we want to be careful that we don't get off message because it's so easy to do, isn't it? In our day today, we've, we've, we allude to it. We know that things are not good, that things are uh, a mess in terms of culture and politics and morals and, and everything. And so what are we going to get focused on? What are we going to preach? What's our message? You know, in Isaiah chapter 8, the, uh, we don't have to turn there because of time, but in Isaiah chapter 8, uh, uh, God told Isaiah to not be caught up as, as, as the Assyrians were, had already overrun um, Israel and were on the door. There was threats to Judah, and it was a confusing time, and they had national instability, and it was a difficult time, and they had people saying, oh, we're going to be okay or whatever, and they were talking about conspiracies. It says right in the text, conspiracies, don't believe them. He says, come basically to me. And then he quotes, right after that, I have laid a stumbling stone. The verse we saw, uh, the first message last night. <laughs> That's right, the context. Don't get all dismayed and, and all, all out of sorts. <laughs> Focus on Christ. Go to God. And there's our message. 
So let's not get off message. The world needs this message. The world needs the good news of a God who loves them. And we want to be careful in terms of let's proclaim that message and stay on cue. I always like this little meme, condemnation. The best way to get people to join your cause is to tell them how much it hates them. (laughs) And unfortunately, this is how many Christians are painted these days. Instead, we should be looking like this, right? Rejoice. There is good news. Let me explain that to you. So verse 16, as we, I think we're, not good, is it? Uh, Verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel for Isaiah. Lord, who has believed our report. So he's summarizing in 16 and 17, as amazing as this truth is, as good as the grace of God is, people don't believe it. This is true of everybody, but obviously who are we focusing on in particular? Israel, quoting from their scriptures. And Isaiah had the same frustration. People don't believe. Who has believed our report? So not all have obeyed the gospel, and the way, right, right there in the text, it's explaining the way you obey the gospel is what? Believe it. Respond. So, that's the point. Not all have obeyed. Quoting here Isaiah 53, verse 1, a rhetorical question, and of course the answer um, uh, is anticipating the answer of a few. Not all have uh, it's not really a, it's a rhetorical statement. Not all have believed, meaning some have, but mostly they're not. And so the conclusion, the bottom line in verse 17 is, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so the bottom line is to believe the gospel message that reaches your ears. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. In verse 17, the first word is a pie. It means so then. The idea there is that as you can see. So it's clearly a summary statement. As you can see then, this is the conclusion of this syllogism of verses 14 and 15. Faith comes by hearing. Comes is added for translation. It's not in the original. It's in italics. But the preposition here is faith. Ek comes out from hearing. Faith is out from hearing. And by the way, hearing is very relevant to a first century culture. They didn't didn't even have many books, much less nothing that would be, uh, everything was going to be carried through audio, um, word of mouth and preaching, etc. That's why they had heralds. So faith comes out of hearing. And hearing is through, it's a different preposition now, is through the word of God. And there's a textual variant here. Uh, the King James of Byzantine is through the, the word of God. Um, most of the translations are going to say the word of Christ here. Of course, they're the same. But I think it is nice to see it as the word of Christ because that's specifically what we're seeing. The word of faith is preaching back in verses 6, 7, and 8, right? The word, that's the message, the word which we preach. The word of Christ, it's about Christ. Christ is the Lord. He is Yahweh. So, the literal rendition could be, faith comes out of what is heard, and what is heard comes through the word about Christ. 
Interesting here is also how this is used in Romans 10.16, where you see the righteousness of faith. It's ek again, the righteousness which comes out from faith. So just kind of a, a way of looking at this. You could say we have hearing. Out from hearing is faith. Coming out from faith is righteousness. And so we see that flow. Um, but, of course, do we produce and manufacture our own righteousness? No, that's not what this is saying. We're just observing this. But we're noticing that hearing is the word of God. That's going to come from God. And righteousness is a gift of God. That comes from God. And so what is it, again, that we're to do? Believe. To put our faith. And what the word of God is telling us, and we enjoy the benefits, the generousness, the gift of God that comes by grace. Faith is receiving, then, the testimony of God. So we can conclude again the, oops, I'm, I'm ahead of myself there, but the, on your handout, the one failure, then, is to choose not to believe the gospel message you have heard. So then faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. So the answer, part two, to why is Israel missing it? First of all, they don't understand that it's the righteousness, righteousness comes the same way for, for everybody. And here their failure to attain righteousness is a failure to believe the gospel, the message. And that's why they are missing it. Two final objections are given then, beginning in verse 18. And I'm just, I rephrased them on your handout just to make it, uh, so we could get the flow. Um, are you sure that they all heard? That's the essence of verse 18. Have they all heard? What's the answer? Directly answered, yes, indeed, they have heard. This is the fifth of the rhetorical questions. He's now going to quote the third Old Testament citation, and he's going to appeal, to appeal to Psalm 19 and verse 4 when he says, Their sound has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends, their words to the ends of the world. And this is interesting because this is a, a passage that's talking about how creation in the heavens declare the glory of God and give testimony and give witness to the things of who God is. So the creation speaks, and it's clearly visible to all. But again, Paul is taking this and making an application to the preaching of Christ. Notice he says in verse 4, their words to the ends of the world. And there's also the reference again to the preaching of faith, the word of faith back in Romans 10, verse 7 and 8. So Paul is applying this, apparently, that through this testimony, Everyone has heard. And again, this would be true of everyone, but our specific focus is on who? Israel. And now the last question is going to completely bring our whole thing back to Israel only. This is the problem. Israel has not believed. And so the question is in verse 19, did Israel not know? In other words, are you sure that Israel knows? And the answer is, they do. How do we know that? Because he's going to quote first from Deuteronomy, and he's going to say, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation, Gentiles, and I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. So how can you get provoked to anger if you haven't heard anything? <laughs> right? In fact, this word provoke to anger, it's interesting, it's a verb that's usually used of how Israel provokes God to anger. <laughs> and now he's turning around and he's saying, the Gentiles are provoking you to anger because you're seeing what's going on or you're seeing what they're doing or what they're claiming or whatever, and it's making you jealous. Yeah, they heard, 
That's one example. Moses as the witness. Yes, they heard. And he uses another quote from the Old Testament, this time Isaiah 65, 1 and verse 20, when he says, but Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask me. And so his point here is, clearly, who else heard? The Gentiles. So yeah, Israel heard, and we know they heard because they're provoked to jealousy. We also know that if the Gentiles heard it, who weren't even being directly addressed through all the prophets and the covenant, right? And they've heard, then clearly Israel has heard on top of that. And so we get to verse 21, where now God, he's going to quote the next verse in Isaiah, the sixth citation, Isaiah 65, 2. And here we read, all day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. All day long means persistent and amazing patience. All day long, these people have been stubborn and obstinate. All day long. And then we think, yeah, they're so bad and foolish, those Israelites, obstinate. How does that work in our Christian life? Who else is always waiting for us to respond to him? All day long, there's the grace available for you and I. Do we sometimes look like a f obstinate or stubborn people? Our God is so gracious. <clears throat> He's stretched out my hands, is the idea. <clears throat> All day long, I have stretched out my hands or opened my hands. This is an image of welcome and fellowship. This is a welcoming image. On the other side of that stretch, though, is a stubborn and obstinate people with their back to him. And he calls them disobedient and contrary people. Disobedient clearly then can be connected to what? Rejecting the gospel. To not believing. Isn't that what Isaiah said? Or excuse me, what we read in uh, Isaiah, uh, Romans, excuse me, chapter 10, verse 16. From the quote in Isaiah, Lord who has not all have obeyed, who has believed. And so you'll see the little summary there. Um, this is Israel's rejection in present time. This is summarizing the problem. They stubbornly persist, trying to establish their own law-based righteousness and remain willfully ignorant of the righteousness that's freely given via faith in Jesus. And they have heard but have not heeded. The same message the Gentiles have received. Instead of receiving it, they've dug in. And to this day, they remain stubborn, Christ-rejecting people. And God patiently waits. And we'll see what happens in Romans chapter 11. Israel's present-day rejection, she doesn't see the truck Christ, her Messiah. And she doesn't really want to listen. But as we saw last night, God's word will not fail. He remains faithful. And amazingly, the invitation to call on the name of the Lord still stands for whoever, but in this focus, specifically who? The nation of Israel. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you. As we just see in this passage, who's, who's the hero? Who's the spotlight? It's you. It's your sovereignty, your richness, your generousness, your deity. It's your patience, your love. 
all on display. So we rejoice and we thank you. And thank you that you put a message on our lips and that we have a message to proclaim. And it, it doesn't get any better news than that message. And may we be convinced of that. And even if we've, if we've strayed or gotten off message in any way, just pray Father, your spirit uses your word to center us again, strictly on the person of Christ and all that he is. And so we thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.